For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. With little or no fanfare, supporters of recreational marijuana filed an initiative petition with the Secretary of State's office. The measure changes the state constitution to allow for the sale of recreational marijuana in Oklahoma. The group will have 90 days to gather nearly 178,000 signatures Ryan, this has failed in the past. Is it possible it could succeed this time? Absolutely, it could. And, you know, full disclosure, I've been at the table with the drafting of this, pulling mm-hmm. together a campaign. You know, just in many of the ways that I was with State Question 7088, you know, with the ACLU, I wore my ACLU hat there, and we uh, challenged the Attorney General's uh, rewrite, then Scott, uh, Scott Pruitt's rewrite. And then in my personal hat, helped out with, uh, with the campaign for 788. And what we've seen since 788 is that Oklahomans are beginning to realize that we can regulate this, we can tax it. Um, and what, uh, what we're missing out really right now is there's a lot of, there's a barrier of entry for folks to get into the program. Uh, and we still have a lot of criminal penalties out there. This mm-hmm. takes that away. It leaves the medical program intact. You know, so medical folks are going to have their rights intact, uh, based on 788. This just creates a separate program. Uh, and it brings in a lot of revenue to the state of Oklahoma. The, the revenue that we're losing out on is millions, tens of millions of dollars. This is an incredibly exciting campaign. And I can tell you that the folks that have been working on this, some of the top initiative lawyers in the state, uh, some of the top uh, ma- uh, marijuana reform folks in the country coming together, this is a winning campaign. And I think unlike previous efforts, you're going to see that the ability to get the signatures and get this on the ballot and give folks an opportunity to vote this is the campaign that can do that. Neva? Well, I think it will be interesting. I mean, it's not a surprise. I think we saw almost from the moment that uh, medical marijuana passed that uh, there was uh, this uh, effort that started to build uh, with the idea of going for full-blown mm-hmm. legalization of marijuana. I think that's a different bar and a different uh, a different campaign for the, for the voters of Oklahoma. While medical marijuana was something they understood, there was a lot of empathy and sympathy and, and uh, just full-blown support for. Uh, even among older voters that I think traditionally have been opposed to legalization of marijuana, I mean, just across the board, uh, I think it will be an interesting campaign for the proponents of this. Uh, I think they will get the signatures. I don't think that's uh, a big question in my mind. But I think how are they going to uh, take this campaign to the voters and try to sell them on the idea? If it's just, here's another syntax, we're going to get 15% off the top and, and spread it around, and that's a reason to uh, to go this direction, that that may be one, one argument they make. But I think it will be a fascinating campaign, and it will be very... Uh, important, I think, uh, to watch where this ultimately uh, winds up on the ballot because a primary ballot versus a general election ballot, mm-hmm. there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of things there that could factor in to the success or failure of this type of state question. Ryan, why do it secretly? Why they just kind of turned it in and didn't tell anybody? Didn't have a big yeah. I mean, up to this point, the biggest part of the campaign has been drafting this language, mm-hmm. uh, coming up with the best policy that we can get and put out in front of the the voters in Oklahoma. And you know, now's the time for the campaign to begin. There's a opportunity. You you find with the Secretary of State's office. There's some administrative stuff. There's a protest period. So we're still probably end of January, beginning of February at the earliest before we could go out and collect signatures. It's during that time that you'll begin to see kind of the the real formal campaign coalesce and Mm -hmm. you'll see a real campaign apparatus, a big rollout and some opportunities for people to talk about this. You know, the revenue is one of the important arguments. You know, about half of this would go into education, about half would go into healthcare, mental health, substance abuse services. But then the other part of it is the, the economic impact. You know, so we talk about what we've seen in medical marijuana, and I've seen it with my own eyes, in particular in rural Oklahoma, new jobs, economic opportunities where they hadn't existed in a long time, 
this builds on that in an exponential way. So the, the economic impact in terms of, of job creation is going to be, I think, a really strong argument for proponents as well. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, there have been about a dozen states that have already legalized marijuana. It will be, I think, uh, a barometer to look at what has happened in some of those states, the positives and the negatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, depending on which side of the coin you're on in this uh, in in this debate. But the, to have a constitutional question, you know, that goes on the ballot that the voters are going to decide on legalization of full-blown marijuana, I think is going to be, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting proposition because looking at that 57% that voted to legalize medical marijuana, I, I think that's a very different proposition than talking about the one that we're going to see in 2020. The battle over gaming compacts is heating up, especially with less than two weeks till the end of the year. Governor Stitt is calling on the tribes to sign an extension to their gaming compacts, or they will be operating illegally on January 1st. But the tribes are refusing to budge on their contention that compacts renew automatically. Neva, do you agree <laughs> with the governor on this? Well, I, it, it, to me, I mean, here was a case of another news conference uh, by the governor rolling out uh, his, uh, you know, his idea of where he goes next on uh, on this gaming fight. And it, again, uh, it, it appears that without any uh, conversation or any notification or anything with the tribal leaders. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of back to just another, you know, another chapter, different to you know, kind of different verse, but it's really um, much the same and intractable positions on both sides. So the idea that somehow we're going to see the state give some generous offer for everyone to sign a piece of paper that one side says uh, there's no reason to be talking about this because it will automatically renew in the tribals in the tribal uh, leaders' views on January one. I think what the stage is set now is: is the governor going to say on January first or January second that the that these operations are illegal and you know what is he going to do to uh, uh, to deal with that I mean it's it's it, there's a lot of drama involved here and I think infusing this notion to um, uh, everyone from folks that are the banks and alcohol and food vendors entertainers uh, casino workers uh, those that go to the casino uh, for the entertainment uh, all of these folks to suggest oh there's some you know bad thing coming with this uh, right here at the holiday season I thought was uh, ill-timed and frankly I'm not sure how well that's going to set with legislators uh, who at some point are probably also going to be infused into this mm-hmm. uh, great debate. Right, you've got rural uh, legislators, you've got tribal legislators yep. on both sides of the aisle. That's right. I, you know, I feel like the governor's move here was like a, a Hail Mary with no receivers in the end zone. Uh, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it just fell. Uh, there's nothing out there. I, this, this to me, it was really, we, you know, Governor Stitt, if you look at his negotiating skills in the legislature, he's really proven himself to be a skillful negotiator in the legislature. He got through some major le- major legislative proposals that a lot of folks thought were, you know, uh, you know, too big for a first term, uh, for a first year of a first term governor, and he got him through, and he got him through kind of just force of will and his negotiating prowess. That's not showing up at all in this uh, in these compact negotiations. I mean, I feel like they have dropped the ball every instance that they've got it, and. You know, there's been a failure to start. I mean, just a total failure to launch around the the idea that this renews. I mean, I think every legal expert in the world that's looked at this, uh, you know, and studied it has said this renews on January one. And so the idea that there's an extension, he doesn't have anything to give. And so what what's he what's he trying to do? And then doing it without talking to the tribal leadership. 
Um, I, and then uh, the, the, the veiled threats about you know, some coercive action that could happen uh, after January 1. Well, I think the other thing that happened on Tuesday with Attorney General Hunter withdrawing yeah, nice. from this yeah. negotiating process Absolutely. and basically saying it's the governor and uh, it's his show now and he's going to uh, be in direct, uh, uh, direct negotiations and deal with the tribes. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a, again, kind of throwing it back to square one. Mm-hmm. And so we've had all of this time and kind of all of this standoff. Uh, and now we, we reached D-Day coming, and I think what you know what we see is what uh, has been said more often than not it, that it'll wind up in the courts, and that's where I think we I think that's where we see it going very quickly. And I think another thing that didn't help is that uh, he came out and this governor came out and said, "Oh, he's already talking with commercial operators right. about moving yep. into Oklahoma," and there is no way to upset both sides of the aisle quicker than saying the commercial operators are going to be coming in and building a Las Vegas in Oklahoma City. I mean, yeah, that's that's a that's a brand new paradigm. I mean, that's that's something that nobody had really even considered. And just to throw that out there, I mean, it doesn't work. I mean, just even, even the political or economic model of it just really doesn't work. I mean, the, if you open it wide open, the tribes are already here. These sovereign tribal na- nations already have the market captured. So, well, I mean, and the, and who's going to move in here and try to compete with that's them? That's right. And if, if Governor's saying that he's having conversations with the White House or the uh, Trump administration on, on this matter, and the Indian gaming uh, issues that are looming. I mean, again, there's there there are a lot of these things kind of being thrown out there with no real facts. Uh, mm-hmm. There was no document uh, yesterday when when he's saying he wants an extension. Where where was the paperwork? Where were the specifics? And yet here we had uh, here we had the governor standing up and trying to uh, kind of launch, like you say, this uh, this last uh, you know this <laughs> last minute uh, hail mary. And that I think from a public standpoint, I think the governor you know heretofore has thought perhaps. Perhaps that the that the uh, sentiment among just general Oklahomans would be more on his side, but mm-hmm. I think I think that's going to be the big question when we start to see this, you know, unfold after January. Is where is public sentiment on this? Where is legislative sentiment? And and I think there could be a, a gross miscalculation potentially on the governor's part uh, based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, ten or fifteen years ago, public sentiment may have been with the governor. I mean, fifteen mm-hmm. years ago, but it's not now. And you know, if you know, if if the governor's listening. Uh, you know, my, my advice, my free unsolicited advice here <laughs> is that just recognize that sometimes you lose them and sometimes you lose and you just, you just, just roll it up. And because that's, that's really, if, if the governor's office wanted to renegotiate this and get higher rates in the compact, uh, or some future compact, they failed to do in that. And so you you know, we're here, uh, on, on the verge of the, the end of the, of 2019, I think he should just say, we're done. We, we tried and we lost, uh, but guess what? Because the contracts, because the compacts automatically renew, they're not contracts. And, they are compacts. And for folks, all Oklahomans win. We all win when they renew. That's right. And and just following it, just what has been publicly, you know, stated, you know, all through this process, the last several months, we've seen a situation that's not changed from the very moment that all of this started, with the governor having his op-ed in in, in a, mm. a major newspaper in the state to to suggest that all the tribal leaders have said in, in response is look, all you have to do is acknowledge that it automatically renews, then we'll come to the table and we actually will be willing to negotiate. So the negotiating part has been stymied by one, you know, one single uh, point, and that is the governor unwilling to uh, make this concession. So we'll see what happens. Oklahoma City Democratic Representative Shane Stone is delaying his resignation by one day. Stone's resignation takes effect on January 1st rather than December 31st. The one-day delay means no special election is needed next year before the general election in November. 
Ryan, what do you think of Stone's decision? Well, that I mean, it just turns everything upside down because all of a sudden you had a special election. You, uh, election. you had some you know, people gearing up to you know figure out well who, who's going to run in this. Is it going to be unopposed? Uh, and and now we're looking at a you know maybe a primary and maybe a November election. Who knows? I mean, um, I think that it the, just got boring all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're, we're we're taping on Wednesday. We're we've got the TV on articles of impeachment being read on the House floor. So I mean, <laughs> who but knows? but you know, I think that. Um, uh, you know the the idea that that district now will have no representation. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's a that's um, I think that that's a that's a real issue. I mean they're going to have even if we'd had a special election, we could have had somebody in there at the end of the legislative session for important votes around appropriations and budget and you know getting somebody up to speed and then if they could run as an incumbent. And so I mean I think that that changes the dynamic. It does save the state some money and, and Representative Stone some money because Representative Stone mm-hmm. had pledged some of his campaign 14, cash fourteen thousand yeah. fourteen thousand towards. Uh, now he gets to spend that in other uh, ways that pay you can legally distribute. Yeah, you know, pay yeah. off debt. You know, you know, contribute to other campaigns or something like that. But um, yeah, I think that the biggest deal here, the biggest takeaway, is that district will have no representation for 2020 in the Oklahoma House. Neva. Well, I think I think the takeaway to me is that uh, there was this uh, kind of reassessment of the fact: is it better to have two back to back, a special and a regular election, if you if you want to hold on to the seats, if you're the Democrats. Or, in the case of the Republicans, a low turnout special election definitely accrued to their, mm-hmm. you know, possibility of being able to pick up the seat. So I think I think it was uh, kind of the political gamesmanship back and forth between the R's and the D's on the, mm-hmm. on the legislative front of how do we either defend or try to pick up this seat. Now we know it's going to be one election. And uh, frankly, for, even though you, you make the point that there will be uh, some, some time where there will be not a representative in place in that district, there will still with their state senator and, mm-hmm. and surrounding right. legislators they will have an opportunity to have uh, have their matters uh, handled so I don't think there's quite the huge void particularly when we're talking about everyone after April will have filed and already be into the into right. the campaign cycle that will lead to the June primaries and the November general election and, and that special election would have had you know probably abysmally low turnout I mean that district yeah. has low turnout anyways that's and right so, that's right you know this would have even lower turnout so I mean I, I think that there is a case to be made that if, if more folks are going to be at the table to make a selection as to the next representative you know the uh, the general election and the primary process that's set in place other than a special is probably the place to do that epic virtual charter school is suing state senator ron sharp for libel and slander the lawsuit claims the shawnee republican published false statements against the school neva in full disclosure senator sharp is a client of yours but how unusual is it for a school to sue a public official well it appears to be highly unusual and i think the i i think that uh, you know many that have looked at the suit and kind of followed uh, what has transpired in the last uh, few months uh, find this to be baseless find this to be a case where uh, this is definitely uh, would fall under protected political speech that he mm-hmm. has done nothing in his role as a senator to ask questions to ask for information I mean that is part of the role of a legislator I mean uh, when when constituents come and have issues whether it's with a school system or whether it's with the uh, the, the city the county uh, uh, end of, uh, other uh, uh, anything else frankly uh, it is their role and in their purview to be able to go and 
and uh, solicit information, to talk to people. And I think what we've got here is just kind of this ongoing that we've talked about now for several months, this ongoing back and forth battle uh, over some of the questions that have been raised. Those will be those will be dealt with in the proper uh, in the in the proper way. And I think what we'll see at the end of the day is that uh, uh, this will go through go through whatever process is needed in the, in the courts. But the 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 political side of this is really, I think, the 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 key point is that this is a highly politicized mm-hmm. uh, environment where you've got uh, you've got Senator Sharp on one side, Epic on the other side, and we'll just have to see now that they've thrown this lawsuit in the mix what happens. I can't imagine, Ryan, what would happen if the judges sided with Epic on this, not, not allowing a, a lawyer to or not allowing a political official to do what they need to do. I mean, I'll save you some time. You don't have to imagine it because they're not going to. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is a this is just an epic mistake by Epic Charter Schools to file this lawsuit for so many reasons. And Neva is absolutely right. Regardless of what you think about Senator Sharp, regardless of what you think about Epic Charter Schools, as a lawmaker, any entity that's getting our state dollars that we pay in as Oklahomans as taxpayers, any entity that's getting that, they ought to be subject to scrutiny of state lawmakers. And if you don't like what's happening there. Well, then, you know, there's elections for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to go out and try to, you know, litigate your way, litigate a lawmaker into silence, uh, I mean, that's a terrible precedent. And it's a precedent that our founders recognized. That's why in our state laws and our state constitution, we have immunity uh, for lawmakers, the things that they say during the performance of their legislative duties. I mean, Epic's got this bizarre argument that because he didn't say it on the floor of the Senate, <laughs> that, it, that it, you know, that the immunity doesn't apply. It's just ridiculous. I mean, the case law is just totally contrary there. And here's the other big thing uh, that I think Epic... Uh, just as a strategic matter that they've done. Right now, Senator Sharp has been trying to you know, pry information out of OSBI. He's been trying to pry information out of the State Department of Education. He's been filing Freedom of Information, Open Records, request, Open Records Act request with all these groups. Well, guess what? Now that he's being sued, you have discovery tools. You know, so he's going to be able to seek deposition. He's going to be able to seek interrogatories. He's going to be able to seek production of documents through the legal process. And it's not going to be up to some agency head as to whether or not they get to fulfill this through the Open Records Act. It's going to be up to a judge as to whether or not it's relevant to the litigation. That is a much bigger window. Epic has just exposed themselves in a way that I I don't know that they realize that they have. And if they do, I just, I don't understand that decision. How far do you think this could go, Neva? Do you think this could go Well, I have no idea from a legal, from the legal perspective, but you have to assume that, I mean, they'll, they'll, they will kind of move this process fairly quickly. And it may be that the, that the court uh, just uh, uh, disposes of it quickly. I mean, you know, you know, as Ryan says, I mean, uh, in the estimation of many that have looked at it, it seems baseless. I mean, based upon what they have filed and uh, the arguments and the and uh, what they're asserting, that that it's a pretty high bar to try to get across to uh, get any movement on this. But time will tell. If I remember my college media law class, they would have to actually prove malice. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. not just because it, it's political it's speech. Politi- so he's yeah. he's allowed to say whatever he needs to say unless he is actually maliciously attacking them. And, and, and that's his First Amendment defense. I mean, yeah. he has a defense as a legislator too. I mean, so he's got two really solid defenses. You know, the um, you know when, when we when we think about what what this means in terms of uh, the discovery tools available to, to Senator Sharp now. 
they, uh, he may not want this to be over. I mean, he could probably file a motion to dismiss. And I think that nine out of 10 judges, if not 10 out of 10 judges, uh, agree with his motion to dismiss and they kick it out. But he may want to say, okay, I'll file an answer. And here's my attached discovery request. And here are my requests for depositions. Um, you know, so if Senator Sharp wants to, he probably has two paths to choose from. Well, and the poli- and the political dynamic here, I mean, when you, when you read this and you hear, you know, these statements or read these statements that, uh, uh, where they say they suggest that uh, that they've been exposed to public hatred, contempt, and ridicule uh, by by what Senator Sharp has done, or that they uh, have deprived the plaintiff of uh, public confidence, uh, you know, in their uh, in their mission and in their school. I mean, those seem to be things that uh, are going to be very difficult if if they want to move through a legal proceeding mm-hmm. to try to prove. And so I think it's a, it's regrettable that this type of uh, exchange back and forth uh, that uh, clearly there's uh, uh, no meeting of the mind on has had to move now to the legal side. Parents and teachers of schools with four-day weeks are working to maintain the status quo. They're calling on lawmakers not to adopt new rules to end the practice. They would set, uh, the new new rules would set new standards for the districts to continue the abbreviated school weeks. Ryan, what's the argument here? I mean, well, the argument is that, that they've been doing this. They feel like they've been doing it successfully, in particular in these rural areas. They've been able to do it in a way that saves the school district some money, and they're able to, to reinvest that into the classrooms and, and, and not... You know, lay folks off or increase class. I mean, those are those are their arguments. You know, I think one of the things that if they're going to prevail in this, you know, what ultimately they've got to demonstrate is that there's either no difference between the educational benefit of a four-day week versus a five-day week, or you know, alternatively, that a four-day week is actually better than a five-day week. I mean, you know, that to me is the real uh, burden that they have to lift whenever they go to the Capitol and and try to say that these rules uh, shouldn't preclude a four-day week because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we can say whatever we want about saving money in schools, but the purpose of the schools is to give our kids the best education they can get. Neva. Absolutely, and I think that is the key, Ryan. I mean, let's talk about educating the kids. Let's not talk about that this is a valuable tool in uh, uh, attracting and retaining teachers or that this is something that they prefer. I mean, the shorter shorter school week. I mean, it is about, I mean, this threat that somehow uh, teachers are, are are uh, in the right and the parents are just going to go along with this they're not going to rise up and say uh, no you're not going to close our schools as someone mm-hmm. suggested uh, uh, in this conversation that this is going to be kind of the result in in these hundred school districts out of the 500 across Oklahoma I mean the 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 proof is in the is in the results I mean if the kids are getting the education that they deserve and that we should be affording them in, in the public schools across Oklahoma that's one thing but just to you know leave it about money and how many days we go to school and all of these other uh, all of these other arguments that seem to be just always at the forefront rather than what you know what we're really doing in terms of educating kids that's that's where the that's where the argument and the whole paradigm needs to change although the, the state wasn't able to offer a lot of money last time they were basically about to close and yeah. And possibly even be consolidated. And we, when we saw that, whenever the four-day school week first came out, it was of this fiscal necessity. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was a you know, pedagogical benefit to the students. It wasn't, well, we're doing this because this is right, better, it's for, better this. for Yeah, Yeah, it was because this is what we've got to do to keep our doors open and to be able to uh, maintain operating with our current budget situation. That hasn't changed a lot for a lot of these school districts. They're still hurting. I mean, their budgets are still well below what they were 10 years ago if adjusted for inflation. Now, I'm not saying that, that the picture is, is super rosy right now, but if they're going to make this argument in a compelling way to lawmakers uh, and to uh, you know, state administrators, 
they've got to be able to demonstrate that there's some educational benefit or at least some educational wash in the difference between a four-day and a five-day week. And they've got to look at all the facts. And many of these small districts and these small rural communities, you have loss of student population. I mean, you yes, you have some budget issues, and those are things that at the local level, as I've always said, need to be addressed by the local school board and the superintendent. And, and it needs to be decisions that are wisely made that they make the cuts and the changes and adapt in a way that doesn't that doesn't diminish their ability to provide the education that they're required and should be making their very number one priority in 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 those districts. And so I think that a lot of this again kind of gets shoved shoved aside when we talk about these districts. Some of some of some of these districts with fewer than a hundred students, and we're talking about uh, all of these issues and and trying to lump them all together like they're all equal. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. And I think we need to have these parents in these communities and school districts look at them through the prism of where they are and what they want for their kids. Could this maybe light the fire under them? Say, look, if you want to keep the four-year school, you've got your parents, you've got to help your kids do better in homeschool. Teachers, administrators, you've got to work a little harder. At the end of the day, it's about results. It's at the end of the day, the kids, have we given them the education that allows them to move forward and be successful in life? And that should be the premise that all of the rest of this rises or falls on. And we've got also some of the wraparound services that that deal with five, you know we have five day wraparound services in other schools everything from nutrition you know making sure the mm-hmm. kids have breakfast and lunch uh, you know to counseling services things that you know maybe there is a difference between having access to that five days a week versus four days a week I mean those are you know the the wraparound not just even in the classroom but the benefit of having that extra day for those services as well is really important for a lot of students and families and Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU KOSU its staff or management.